happy new tax year and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and Andrew Liebes, Lead Manager of Pantheon International. You are probably familiar with stock markets such as the FTSE 100, where companies are listed so investors can buy their shares. But there are also many companies that are not listed on public markets and can't be bought so easily. And these companies are of interest to what are known as private equity funds. Andrew, Pantheon International is a listed private equity fund. Can you tell us a bit about the fund and what it invests in? Certainly. Pantheon International is a fund that we launched in 1987. So it's it's been uh, on the London Stock Exchange for the last 30 years. And during that time, we've invested in private equity assets through uh, funds. So we, we invest in private equity funds when they're first raised. We buy secondary interests in those funds. And we also co-invest in directly in private companies alongside the managers of those funds. Okay. Now, why do you invest in funds rather than directly buy unlisted companies? We invest in funds because it's it's a way of creating a global program that gets investors access to the best talent out there. And so our investment team, which numbers some 70 plus professionals globally, is able to scour the market for the very best managers who themselves are, are, are specialised in the way that they invest. And we are benefiting from that degree of specialism by investing in funds. How many funds do you invest in? And um, how many underlying companies does taking a fund of funds approach give you exposure to? When we uh, set out to invest in uh, private equity funds, we're looking to create a core of exposure through 20 to 30 what we would call mid-market managers around the world. And we add to that through the secondaries market. So overall, we may be exposed uh, at the core to around 50 to 60 uh, managers. And we will have others um, outside of that because of the longevity of our program. But generally speaking, we're looking to invest in a core of uh, 20 to 30 mid-market managers with others acquired through the secondary market. And how many underlying companies does this ultimately give you exposure to? Well, each of those funds themselves are creating a diversified portfolio in order to manage the risks within their own funds. And so that gives rise to an even larger number of, of companies. And that's helpful in creating the diversified return that we've been able to create over the years. So overall, um, our, um, the top... Um, 80% of net asset value is represented by about 600 underlying companies and the tail has more than that but essentially uh, at the at the heart of the of the trust is about 600 Okay. Now, you were talking about mid-market and secondaries, which is obviously types of funds. So um, for our listeners out there who aren't very familiar with private equity, you know, what, are, what is mid-market, what is secondaries? And um, just, just more broadly, you know, what kind of private equity funds do you like to invest in? We think the private equity process is highly effective in transforming the value of what we would describe as mid-market companies. And those are companies that are typically in the range of 50 to 500 million pounds of enterprise value. Again, there's a, there's mm. a spectrum around yeah. that, but that's, yeah. that's uh, broadly the range. So that's, that's at the heart of our portfolio. Now, we can buy into those 
uh, funds also through the secondaries market. And the advantage of that is that we have very strong relationships with certain managers in the market. We know a lot of what is actually private information in relation to the funds that they're investing in. And we can use that to our advantage as we decide whether or not to buy into those funds if we're offered an opportunity to do so because somebody wants to sell out. Okay, so so to to get it clear, a secondary fund is an existing fund that you join rather than a new fund? That's correct. And and rather than thinking of it as a secondary fund, we Mm. we think of it as a secondary transaction in a private equity fund. So we will buy into a private equity fund after its inception Mm. and we will buy an interest of an existing holder. And that is a secondary interest in that fund. And so a lot of the way that we acquire exposure to this market is not just by investing at the beginning of the fund's life as Mm. a primary investor, but also by buying secondary interests from existing investors in these funds. And is that beneficial? Is it cheaper to buy uh, a secondary fund? It's highly beneficial because the for, for two reasons, actually. First of all, uh, we have access to good information on these funds, and not everybody so it's got does. Got a bit of a track record. So, yeah. so uh, partly the track record, yeah. but also we can see how the assets themselves are performing. And again, these, these, this is private information. So, in contrast to the public markets, mm. where everybody has the same information, we can ha- we can exercise an information advantage in securing an investment advantage as we buy into the fund. The second advantage of buying a secondary interest is that we're much nearer to the point at which an asset is sold, and it is our experience that we typically see good uplifts on the sale of those assets. So if we're nearer to that point where we get it, where we experience a, a, a good uplift, then that is a, a, a potentially a better time to be buying into the, to, into the asset. I was looking at um, your fund factory and I see that in terms of types of private equity funds, you like ones that specialise in buyouts. What are buyouts? A management buyout is, is where investor works with a management team to buy a controlling interest in a company alongside that management team, so very closely aligning the interest of the management team with the interest of the shareholders, and doing so with a view to creating value and and usually transformative value creation plan over a defined period of, say, five years. And that process means that you buy in, management works to to transform the value, to to create real value over that period, and then sells the company because they can, as they own a controlling interest. And why do you like this as opposed to other types of private equity? We find the risks in buyouts are, are, are very much more quantifiable than the risks in other parts of the investment um, spectrum. And it is that it's the, that ability to control your destiny as a buyout manager. By buying control of the asset, it means that you can, you can make sure that the asset um, responds to economic conditions um, quickly in, uh, in order to, 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 to protect the value in that asset. You can make sure that the changes that you think uh, are achievable within the business can be achieved according to a timetable that is, that is practical and reasonable. And you can really think Better than in any other part of the equity markets, you can align your interests with the manager's management's interests. And those are very, very clear advantages and ones which help to reduce the risk of owning equity in this in this way. Are there any disadvantages to investing in other private equity funds rather than directly in unlisted companies? I don't think there are uh, disadvantages in in building a global private equity program through a fund approach. And that is because there's no other way 
that you can expect to get exposure to such good investment talent by being able to select specialized fund managers around the world to do that. It's a bit like saying that, uh, you know, does it make sense to pay an airline to fly you from A to B when you could fly there yourself? Well, there are specialist skills, uh, risk management practices and processes in place to get you safely from A to B. And that's the advantage, if you like, um, that the, or the parallel that can be drawn in terms of the advantages of investing in funds rather than going directly. Is it not more expensive, though? Because ultimately, presumably, your shareholders have got two levels of fees, your fund fees and the underlying fund fees. Um, actually, the way that we invest, I think it's probably not more expensive. And um, the recent publication of key information documents under the new PRIPS regulations um, illustrated something that we've been um, making, or well, the point that we've been making for, for, for some years. Because of the mix of our investment between primary, secondary and co-investment, the forms in, of the way that we're investing actually reduce the costs of, of getting exposure to the assets that we're investing in. So our, our fees, even though they are on top, in aggregate, do not increase the cost of, of uh, gaining access to this global program. Okay. Now, do you ever put any of your assets directly into companies? We do. As a, as a co-investor, we are investing alongside our best-of-breed managers globally in order to um, gain additional exposure to the assets and to the um, investment programs that they're putting together when they invite us to do so. The advantage of doing that is we can put money to work alongside them in a way that continues to be managed by them, but where they're not paying, where, where we're not paying a management fee on that capital. And that's one of the factors that I referred to earlier, which helps us keep the overall cost of our approach to investment down and makes us a very competitive way of, of investing in this asset class. How do you go about selecting which private equity funds you're going to invest in? I mean, presumably it's a different process to perhaps picking an investment you invest in directly? The process is done over um, um, over years, really, of, of building a good understanding of how it is that a particular manager is able to generate the return that they uh, that they have done through the private equity process and the and the funds that they've managed. Um, that's done by us through our investment team, which, as I said, numbers over seventy people um, out of our out of our total staff of more than two hundred and fifty people globally. Um, we are based in uh, we have offices in Americas in in um, in Europe and in Asia, so that we're close to the markets that we're investing in. We are constantly in touch with. Uh, the managers, not only the managers that we are already invested in, but other managers who we are we are tracking to see uh, through research whether they're ones that we want to add to our to our program. And through that research, through that continuous contact, we are able to build up a very good picture of which of these um, managers have a sustainable competitive advantage in their markets, and we select those managers in order to um, to to generate the superior returns that we're looking for. Your geographic and sector allocations are they a deliberate choice on your part, or an outcome of the funds and the managers that you choose to invest in? A little bit the latter in the sense that we are investing uh, where we think the opportunity to find managers who can generate good returns is best. And the majority of that activity happens to be in America, 
there is a, a vastly larger pool of, of quite specialized managers in America. Is that why um, over half your assets in the US? And, which is exactly yeah. why over half is in the US. I think from a sectoral point of view, uh, we also find that certain sectors lend themselves particularly well to the private equity buyout process. And these tend to be asset light business models in certain segments which can have fast moving characteristics which allow the, the growth potential uh, of earnings within the businesses that, that our, our um, managers are, are targeting. So we, we have a considerable exposure to the IT sector. That's about a quarter of our portfolio. Uh, niche consumer activities represent again about a quarter of our, our portfolio. And then healthcare is another significant sector. Likewise, industrial services, predominantly services, and um, and then to a lesser extent, financial services and some energy assets. Prices for private equity investment funds, as I understand, have been high. So are you able to invest without spending too much? Can you find you know good investments at good prices? Prices are high in all markets everywhere, and and uh, we are not we are not immune to that. Certainly, I think that um, private equity is an attractive market to be investing in in these conditions, not least because the opportunity to buy in on the basis of private or proprietorial uh, information is is better than it is in in other marketplaces like the listed markets where it's all much more sort of even playing field and so those advantages can be exploited to the benefit in these in these conditions one of the things that that private equity does um, a significant amount of is building scale in smaller and mid-market businesses and it does that both uh, through organic growth but also through acquisition and so one of the ways that, that managers seek to reduce their effective cost of, of acquisition is essentially by, by using a platform of a larger initial investment to bolt on, add on incremental um, investments uh, as part of an acquisition program, which tend to be acquired at cheaper prices. And so that's a, a way of bringing down the overall entry price of investments that are made in our sector. And private equity managers are active in that area. And so I think that uh, in markets that are expensive, private equity and the way that we approach private equity is an advantageous way to address these markets. Okay. I suppose on the flip side, um, have you been able to make um, lots of realizations at good profits recently? We have. And and we, we always find, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that there is a, a, a tendency um, on average for uh, for realizations to occur at an uplift to their recent holding value and part of that reason I think is that is that managers have the the luxury within the private equity sector of deciding when to sell an asset and so they sell an asset that they have effectively fully prepared for a sale and by fully preparing an asset for a sale what they're seeking to do is to um, bag a strategic premium um, in in disposing of that asset and so one of the reasons I think you see these uplifts coming through when you dispose of assets is essentially you're getting a strategic premium for an asset that's that's valued at a at an average um, comparable market value 
Okay, I suppose one um, issue that occurred with the current situation, if you're able to, you know, sell lots of things at a nice fat profit, but perhaps not find so many things that you can invest in at a reasonable price, does it mean you've got cash piling up? And is there a risk that there might be cash drag on Pantheon International's returns? Well, we, we work very hard to, to make sure that uh, or to minimise any sort of drag on, on our returns. But you're right, from time to time, cash can uh, drag on returns. Um, at the moment, cash represents rather less than ten percent of our of our assets, and so we don't think it's a it, we don't think it's a a significant effect. What we won't do, though, is just because we get more cash back, we won't see that as a reason simply to invest that cash faster. So we're looking to invest cash at a steady pace over over time to ensure that we're not going to be disadvantaged by sort of pro-cyclical investment effects. It would be the case if we if we simply tried to redeploy at whatever rate we were getting cash back. Over short-term periods, your net asset value returns have lagged those of other private equity fund of funds and mainstream equity indices. Why is this? Well, I think, and, and I'm, I'm not sure where your data comes from particularly, but I Winter think flood, right? But I, th- I think that what they what they've observed is probably in the in the recent uh, within the last year, mm. and um, currency effects have been quite negative for us because we have such large exposure to the US, the US dollar. And so my suspicion is that if, if that is the case, which, which it has been the case only in the very recent past, that it's, it's mainly due to currency effects. That aside, actually, I would like to make the point that we are very focused on, on generating good performance. And one of the things that we have noticed um, about performance is that the the older funds in our portfolio can have a tendency to underperform than the newer uh, investments, and so more recently we were able to uh, do a transaction uh, which enabled us to de-emphasise that uh, that older tail of of assets, uh, and therefore also the weighting between younger and older assets within our portfolio. We think that that will be helpful in increasing our performance. On the subject of um currency issues i mean just over the years how how much of an impact has it had on you know your returns sort of positive or negative and do you ever hedge to try and mitigate this we we don't hedge and we do ask investors whether they think we should be hedging and and the feedback is um is across the vast majority that that they don't think that that's something that, that we need to do our 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 philosophical view on it is that for the long-term investor, and we think that this is an, a, a, an asset class that is really only appropriate for a long-term investor, that currency effects don't make a significant impact on the overall return. So for the long-term investor, we don't think it it makes a significant impact. For the short-term investor, it can make an impact. And, and short-term investors anyway should be um, in uh, cash. In cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, at the end of last year, you consolidated Pantheon International's two share classes. Why did you do this and what have the effects been? Our share structure had two classes of shares, which was something we introduced some many years ago. And it had served its purpose. It had, it had, it had served us well over the period. But we found that because one of the share classes was non-voting it was not included in the index and so by consolidating the two shares we doubled the company's market cap 
in terms of its position in the index. And that's that was helpful to increase the demand for its shares. So we were able to achieve that consolidation at the end of last year. And it's, uh, in our view, probably already had an, a, a positive impact on the share price performance. The shares are now part of the FTSE 250 index. Um, that's created some buying interest. And, and that's, that's, that's probably overall helpful. Is that why your discount to net asset value has recently tightened? I think it may be one of the reasons that that the discount has tightened. Um, One of the reasons is that we've just done a roadshow, and I think that every time we remind people what good value um, Mm. our share is at these these, um, discount levels, um, it probably creates a little bit of buying interest as well. Uh, but yes, I'm sure that the um, I'm sure that the inclusion in the FTSE 250 index has has, has uh, in all likelihood been helpful. Okay, now those are obviously beneficial effects. But this um, consolidation, I mean, did it cost a lot? Um, and you know, will that impact on the trust's returns? Um, uh, we think not, in in the sense that its its overall costs um, amounted to rather less than naught point. Two percent of net asset value, and already we've seen a rating improvement in the shares, which um, exceeds that. But also, part of the process involved this issue of the ALN, which de-emphasised the tail, and we expect that to translate into better overall performance. So we think that the process will be uh, significantly positive in net terms for investors. Private equity has a reputation for being high risks. What are these risks and how do you manage them? The risks of investing in private equity are, first of all, the risks of investing in equity. Private equity is just that. It is equity and equity values can be volatile. Private equity itself uses leverage as part of the toolkit for generating debt. That that being debt. um, As part of the toolkit for for generating a, a superior performance. The risk of leverage in these circumstances, we think, is a very well-managed risk in the sense that um, because, as I've mentioned, the investment managers have a controlling interest in these companies, they can react very quickly to economic circumstances, which enables them to control the cash flows relative to the to the leverage. And we're investing with people who've got a lot of experience of, of investing like this. And so... Uh, we think that that is a, a well-managed risk, but it's but part of the how do we manage the risk, in answer to your question, is that we are very careful in selecting managers who have a lot of experience of investing in this way through cycles. And we can see how those perfor- portfolios have performed in previous difficult cycles. Thank you, Andrew. A really interesting insight into Pantheon International and the world of private equity. Thank you, Leonora. Turning to listed markets, many investors are cautious on the UK because of the uncertainty that its forthcoming departure from the European Union is creating. But one fund manager argues that UK listed stocks are undervalued and offer good opportunities for quality income. Emma, you met this manager. Who is he and why does he say UK shares are undervalued? Yes, I met David Smith, who's the manager of Henderson High Income Trust. And he was arguing that UK stocks are undervalued because there's been a range of takeovers that we've seen recently. For example, Japanese company Takeda Pharmaceuticals bid for biotech business Shire. US global telecoms conglomerate Comcast bid for Sky are just a couple of examples. And there have actually been several since the start of the year. And so he thinks that this shows that foreign investors are seeing the UK is cheap and there are good opportunities here. 
Another reason that he um, felt that UK companies are, are looking cheap is some research that Citigroup did. They measured the UK market's dividend yield relative to bond yields um, over a number of years and found that UK equities have only been cheaper on two occasions in the last century, namely during World War One and World War Two. Obviously, things are nowhere near as bad as that. And so he says, you know, this just shows how much the UK markets have underperformed recently. I mean, that sounds quite compelling, but are there still not many risks to the UK at the moment? I mean, certainly. And he accepts that, you know, there is the risk of companies freezing investment because of the uncertainty surrounding Brexit. We still don't know what deal we're going to get. But he thinks that investors really shouldn't lose perspective. He says that, you know, we're not going back to 2008 or 2009. Unemployment is low. The banks have been recapitalised. Interest rates are still low of all, you know, they're creeping up a bit, but they are still at quite low levels. And he also says that investment intentions by companies are positive. So he feels there's lots to be cheerful about. Okay, so what would be examples of good quality shares that David Smith likes? He's seen opportunities in a range of different companies. These include hospitality company Whitbread, which owns the Costa and Premier Inn brands. He also likes pub retailer Green King and fashion retailer Next. And he says all these companies could do well if there's any um, increase in wage growth, which he thinks you know could be quite likely given the undervalue that we've seen in the market. David Smith also recently bought back into a company that Henderson High Income Trust hadn't owned for many years. Which is this company and you know what made him change sort of an avoidance of many years? Sure. Um, the company is Tesco and he's recently brought back into it because he thinks that the CEO, David Lewis, has plans for business for the business to cut costs and to reinvest into Tesco is quite a compelling opportunity. He thinks that actually this is a plan that could work and he's seen momentum in the figures that suggest that Tesco is going to achieve its increase in margin targets and he thinks that this is an underappreciated opportunity. So he thinks that actually Tesco could be an underappreciated opportunity. Thank you, Emma, and see her full roundup of the income shares David Smith thinks a good value in this week's magazine and on the website. In late 2015, Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust's long-standing lead manager Mark Mobias stepped down and handed over the reins to Carlos Hardenberg. But less than three years later, Carlos has also resigned. So yet again, Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust has a new lead manager. Emma, is it of concern that Carlos Hardenberg has left? I mean, I think it definitely is because Carlos Hardenberg had been at the forefront of a turnaround in performance over the last three years after he took over from Mr. Mobias. So over the one and three years, a trust share price has beaten its benchmark, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, um, compared to over five years when it underperformed. And that's obviously during um, Mr. Hardenberg's tenure. He also made a number of changes to the trust, which have contributed to this performance. For example, he reduced the concentration in individual shares and sectors that trust was invested in and increased the range of countries, so increased diversification. And the big change that the trust that he made was investing in tech stocks, which over the last few years have done really well. Um, and so, you know, he had a big impact on, a big positive impact on the trust. So Templeton has not just lost a manager, it's lost a very good manager, which is um, never a good thing. That said, who's taking over? 
Um, well, the person taken over is Chetan Segal, who has been a manager um, and senior research analyst on the trust for two years. So there is a, that degree of continuity. Okay, he so he trust. was part of the team that actually turned it around then. Yeah, ah, absolutely. Like, different situation. Yes, for sure. Um, so he took over on at the start of February. And he also has, you know, very strong background in emerging markets. So he's the director of global emerging markets and small cap strategies at Temperton. And he has over 22 years experience investing in emerging markets. He also runs a number of other funds with similar strategies, including a US listed closed end um, emerging markets fund. So um, how is he going to run the trust? Well, he's saying that he's not planning to make any you know, major changes to the trust holdings or its investment style, which is good news, um, considering that we've seen some good performance lately. Um, so he's going to be continuing to focus on finding companies that have a strong, sustainable earnings power and doing that with at a discount, as the trust does have this um, value tilt to its investment style. What kind of um, shares and sectors does he like? Um, well, he also continues to like investing in those tech stocks and he's not planning to you know, reduce that. If anything, he thinks that tech stocks could have much further to run and he thinks that that's the case even though they've done well already because even though they have performed well in terms of their price-to-earnings valuations, they're still quite reasonable. And so he thinks that we could see increased opportunities in hardware companies, for example, which haven't done as well as software companies. Okay, so what would be examples of tech shares at um, Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust's holes? Two examples of hardware manufacturing companies the Trust owns are Samsung Electronics and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. What risks is Mr Seagal concerned about? Because obviously emerging markets is a potentially volatile and, um, well, high-risk area. Um, he's concerned about the potential for faster-than-expected US Federal Reserve interest rate rises, as that could lead to a stronger dollar, and that in turn could increase the debt burden of emerging markets um, and also make it harder for exporting companies to you know, sell their goods abroad. Another risk that he's concerned about is political risk. He says there's a number of kind of strong men, leaders in several emerging markets, including Russia, Turkey, China and India. And even, you know, well, obviously the US is not an emerging market, but, you know, arguably he <laughs> yeah. says strong man the in the US as well. example of all, exactly. maybe. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and mm. that, that could be a concern for the impact it has on emerging markets. Thank you, Emma. A really useful update. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more income investing, Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust and Private Equity in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.